Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Our young women are able to see themselves and they're able to imagine and to dream from a very early phase of life. And I think in this, they have learned how to take on leadership and they've done it very powerfully. What it does is create a very strong foundation that I think then allows you to launch really into the future. That is Dr. Paula Johnson talking about the young women she leads as president of Wellesley College. Dr. Johnson has held that position since 2016, the first African-American woman to do so. But that's just one of her many firsts. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Before joining Wellesley, Dr. Johnson was already a groundbreaker in women's health. She holds two degrees from Harvard, both an MD and a master's in public health. As a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, she founded the Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology. Her research into gender differences in medicine has been eye-opening. She was one of the first to question whether women were being overlooked when it came to cardiac care. And her work was the basis for her popular TED Talk, His and Her Healthcare. Listen and learn why Dr. Paula Johnson is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm here today with Dr. Paula Johnson, the president of Wellesley, and I am thrilled to be with her. She is so remarkable in every way that I'm eager to have you in our audience land come to know her better as well. So Dr. Johnson, maybe we can start by my mentioning the fact that you're an internationally recognized researcher, educator, cardiologist, 
health policy expert, and you've dedicated your career to transforming the health of women. But since 2016, you've been the president of Wellesley College. So I'm wondering, is there a common thread that runs through this remarkable career? Milan, let me just begin by telling, uh, by just saying that uh, it is uh, so wonderful to be here with you. Let me just say that, you know, I would say the through line really in my life is a deep commitment to improving women's lives. And a good portion of my career was spent in really focusing on women's health and well-being. And, you know, with that in academic medicine, there's there's really a commitment to education, uh, both educating uh, young professionals, but also educating women with regard to their health. And I think, you know, after uh, an over 30-year career in academic medicine, you know, coming to Wellesley, you know, the, the focus here on education and the development of young women, um, where we're focused on their development, how we can embrace the diversity of the young women here, and also how we think about the role of the college as really the premier women's college, how we think about the role of the college looking outward as we think about the roles of women uh, in the world. Well, that's a very clear common thread, and I, I can see how your career has evolved to this point today. Was there something uh, in your background? Was there some something catalytic when you grew up that uh, brought you to this place in life? When I look back, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and um, I would say that uh, my mother, uh, Grace Johnson, had a... Uh, a tremendous influence on me. She was truly a fierce believer in the power of education. And she was also deeply committed to civic engagement um, and engagement in terms of engagement in the neighborhood, in our Brooklyn neighborhood or the neighborhoods that we, we lived in, um, as well as in our public schools in terms of really being on the front lines to ensure that her daughters, I have one sister, one younger sister, got the kind of education and that all kids got the kind of education that she felt a public system uh, should provide. Um, and I, I should add that, you know, one of her dreams was to go to college and she finished college the year after I finished medical school. So there's clearly perseverance there as well. And, you know, the other woman in my life was my maternal grandmother, Louise Young, who really, um, you know, she struggled with depression for a good part of her life. Um, she helped to inform my decision to enter medicine and uh, really uh, pushing forward on this issue of discovering uh, how women and men experience disease differently. But what I can say about both of them is that I learned a lot about resilience, but I also learned that the particularly positive impact of a strong belief in your abilities, when someone else has that strong belief and then you absorb that. I think that, um, you know, my mother had a tremendous 
early belief in me, uh, the potential to basically do whatever I wanted to do. And um, that, I think, has really impacted me both in medicine and for sure in higher education, how we approach each student, how we approach the potential in, uh, in, for, in, in my case, uh, in women um, that is limitless uh, with the ability that, that uh, our students should flourish. So I think I really trace it um, back, to, uh, back to my childhood and then having those experiences of, um, of mentors throughout my life. Ruth Hubbard, who was the first uh, tenured biology professor at Harvard, was an early mentor and somebody who saw in me what I don't think I could have seen at, at that early stage. So you never know where those touch points are and what sparks uh, uh, kind of a, a, an idea or a belief um, in, in the young people that you interact with. Uh, so beautifully said. And, you know, the touch points of a parent or a, or a mentor, um, just really important. And reinforcing that from your own experience, I think, is an important lesson in and of itself. So you've devoted much of your scientific and medical career to uh, furthering knowledge of the biological differences between women and men, uh, which is so fascinating. What do your findings show, and how is this knowledge important? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting, Milan, that when I started my career over 30 years ago, um, we really had hardly any data on women's health. Uh, beyond their reproductive function. And, you know, I trace my curiosity as an investigator uh, back again to that early mentor, Ruth Hubbard, who uh, turned her, sci- her more basic science career into one of, of really looking at issues of women in science. And um, it really sparked an interest in me to, to better understand not only the role of women in medicine, but also let's understand how science does or does not represent women. And um, through that, you know, basically over 25 years ago, it was really the, uh, the first legislation passed uh, under uh, President Clinton to include women uh, and minorities in phase three, meaning later phase clinical trials. And with that, what we began to learn is that women and men can express and experience health and disease differently, and um, women and men metabolize drugs differently. They have different experiences in the healthcare system, which impacts their health, and their lived experience also impacts their health differently. So, and then you overlay issues like race and ethnicity, and and you know, the story evolves. And, um, you know, the implications of this knowledge are really enormous uh, because what we've learned is that um, various diseases can be expressed differently. And when you don't include women in the science, all the way from the basic science to the clinical trials, that we miss half the population and we don't necessarily get the answer 
that is the right answer for women. Um, let me just give you an example. Um, in heart disease, so that's my, my specialty, we know that women and men um, can experience different symptoms. We know that certain risk factors are different for women for, for coronary artery disease or narrowing of the arteries uh, in the heart. We know that there are certain um, aspects of heart disease that look different. For example, when a woman has a heart attack, the vessels in the heart can look different than the vessels in a male who has a heart attack. And some of the medications that we use, uh, for example, to prevent heart attacks are experienced uh, differently with regard to side effects. And and that isn't even adding issues of uh, the impact of pregnancy on risk for heart disease. So in all of that that I've just said in the past minute or so, imagine if we didn't study women or if women weren't included in the studies. And that, in fact, was the case over 30 years ago. So we've, we've been able to learn a lot. But there's so much more because women are still underrepresented. Frequently, the data are not uh, presented in a way that we understand the impact in women. Um, and, uh, and so there's a lot more to learn and a lot more to understand about various diseases and, in fact, how to best prevent and treat them um, in women and men. It's really interesting, and and it's so impactful because uh, if you don't look at it in a sex disaggregated way, you're really not addressing uh, the differences in half the population. I remember hearing once that um, the experiments on low dose aspirin vis-a-vis um, retarding heart disease uh, were done on men, and yet being prescribed to women without knowing if it would have the same impact. Is that correct? Oh well, Milan, you're you're bringing up the uh, the, the physician's uh, heart study, and um, it was a study that was actually spearheaded out of my home institution, my former home institution, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is one of the premier Harvard teaching institutions. And it was that study that really sparked the movement to make a change at the NIH, and in fact. It was a group of legislators, women legislators, that came in to Congress on the heels of the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the, the first year of the woman, and they recognized, it was when that study was published, that they recognized it had only been done in men. And this spurred them on to actually... Um, work to get this legislation passed in the 1993 uh, NIH Revitalization Act. So, you know, I think it's important on a couple of levels, which is not only is the representation of women um, important in science, and when I say women, I'm talking here about women in trials, but also um, women in preclinical trials female cells and female animals, kind of in, in all types of research. But representation matters um, in all sectors, because imagine if 
we didn't have that year of the woman and we didn't have that whole cohort of women elected to Congress, we might have really, it might have been another, who knows, 20 years before that legislation had been passed. And, you know, fast forward, guess what? When the trial was done, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 years ago or so, 15 years ago, the trial that looked at the impact of low-dose aspirin for preventing heart attacks in women, guess what? The impact is different. Mm. Low-dose aspirin is only impactful for women over the age of 65, and it mainly prevents stroke not heart attack. Interesting. So there is a fundamental difference. We don't understand the mechanism and the why. There's still a lot of work to do. But, you know, we have uh, those women in Congress and and Pat Schroeder was really one of the leaders, uh, Representative Schroeder. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a great story. It's a great story. And it is um, something that is as important today as it was when we were first getting into this. So um, Dr. Johnson went to becoming President Johnson. What was it like? Uh, How did you make the change from being in medicine so deeply uh, to the academy? Not that they're unrelated, but it must have been uh, something you thought long and hard about before you made the change. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I'd been in academic medicine. I was a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I was also a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. And, you know, kind of fast forward uh, four years, who would have thought that that background would have been as helpful as it is today in the middle of a pandemic? Um, But, you know, initially, uh, you know, I was quite happy and we were doing really excellent work um, in the, in, in academic medicine. Um, and, you know, the opportunity came to, to begin to think about, came to me to think about higher education. And I thought obviously long and hard, um, about it. And, you know, when you enter a process like this, you, you enter it with a tremendous amount of exploration and of course, interest but I would say that as the process moved on, I became more and more convinced that this um, really was an important next step um, in my career and in my life. And that the, again, that through line of improving the lives of women in advancing women, that, um, that this could now be taken to a different environment with a different mission, but one that was equally uh, powerful. Um, And I think, you know, for me, Wellesley College, given my work in women's health, was was a, a very powerful draw. So it hasn't been, you know, as large of a jump in terms of, of course, medicine is different from higher ed, but I think the the academic part has has a lot of similarities, and I would just also add that I think as we um, think about bringing an ethic of care to this environment, um, that when we think about the fact that the recognition for students that like everyone thrive 
when they're fully seen for who they are, I think is a direct connection to my work in medicine. And that as I've worked with this younger cohort of women, it's, to be honest, just a lot of fun. Uh, the faculty are phenomenal. I'm learning a tremendous amount. And the, the young women who are not yet formed, they don't exactly know what they're doing yet. They don't know what they want to do or they think they might know, but things change. It's an exciting time of life with a lot of opportunity, as well as with many, many challenges. And to lead a college um, and really see both the discovery end with regard to the research, but to see young people, young women in particular, grow and develop. It is, it's both an honor and, and such a joy. And the rewards of being a mentor. Absolutely. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Well, I happen to know firsthand that you're doing just an exceptional job at Wellesley, and uh, so many people comment on it favorably. I've often wondered what the secret sauce of Wellesley is. Uh, I happen to know 
two of the three female secretaries of state who went to Wellesley. So one college produced two of the three U.S. secretaries of state. I used to ask them if it was the water at Wellesley or what it was, <laughs> because uh, there is something about Wellesley and women's leadership yeah. that really has impact. Well, Milan, you're 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 so right, and I just want to say uh, both for Secretary Albright and Secretary Clinton that um, they are just um, you know uh, we are so proud of them and and so many of our alumni who are in public life who are in civic life it's truly uh, remarkable. Um, I also want to say that we take credit for all three women who have been secretaries of state, and I'll tell you why. It's because Secretary Albright's father was a mentor to Condoleezza Rice. So I think we have a right to <laughs> to take. I think we have a right to take credit for all three. Um, but but in all seriousness. Um, I think that, you know, it's often assumed in terms of Wellesley's founding that it came into being simply because women lacked opportunity, you know, for mm-hmm. a higher for higher education in the late 1800s. But there was really a different compelling vision for Wellesley by its founders. It was for democracy and equal opportunity. And Pauline and Henry Durant, who were our founders, um, they really felt strongly that the nation's future could only be secured through vastly expanded access to childhood education. And that future would require teachers um, and that they founded the college uh, to not only produce teachers to impact democracy in the next generation, but they also founded Wellesley on the premise that women uh, needed um, the highest quality and rigorous education, uh, and also that there was this combination of mind and body that they focused on in terms of uh, uh, being physically fit, as well as uh, as that really impacting um, your your uh, intellectual performance. So it's it's just. I think it's it's really a uniquely empowering environment for women. I mean, it's one of the few places on earth where the buildings, the quads, the programs, they're all they all bear the name of women. Um Wellesley has always had women leadership. Um and our faculty is 52% women and that is in many of the fields in all the fields that have underrepresentation of women, like economics, like the STEM fields, particularly computer science, the quantitative areas. So our young women are able to see themselves and they're able to imagine and to dream from a very early phase of life. And I think in this, they have learned how to take on leadership um, and they've done it very powerfully. And the question always comes, well, does that really inhibit you in the next phase when you are with men? And the answer is no. What it does is create a very strong foundation that I think then allows you to launch um, 
really into uh, into the future. Well, I've certainly seen that in all of the uh, younger women in particular who I've been uh, privileged to work with over the years. Um, they have that sense of uh, having been empowered and have confidence and and certainly the capacity uh, to do the work that they are engaged in. You know, single-sex uh, higher education uh, has been controversial in some quarters, uh, and it's obviously not for everybody. Uh, but there are so many benefits. Um, you described some of them. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we are, I think, right now in our country um, and in the world at a threshold moment for women's leadership. And, um, you know, I think there's been advancement, but there are also places where women's rights are at stake in ways that we wouldn't have imagined. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting that the need for women leaders um, women leaders who we know from the data, and I know Milan, you're you are so focused, rightfully so, on what is the proof, what is the evidence that we look at, and we know that women's leadership um, is so impactful, both at the local level, at the state level, at the at the country level, and that's I'm here now talking internationally. Um, so the need to really uh, produce not only strong women and women who lead with ethics, um, but the need to also represent as an institution that type of leadership, I think, is critical. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because most of our students or a majority of our students come to us, come to Wellesley, because we're an outstanding liberal arts college. And, but, you know, when they arrive and when they access the curriculum in ways that are truly liberating uh, with, you know, if you look at two of our most popular majors are economics and neuroscience with computer science rapidly growing as well. What I would say is that by the time they're leaving Wellesley, they are convinced that having this opportunity in uh, in this environment um, has been liberating. And, um, you know, I would say that it is truly this mindset that is uh, fostered, uh, fostered at Wellesley. So um, it's, uh, you know, a as we move forward, you know, what is the next level? The next level is to make sure that all of the young women on our campus, whatever their background, we are need blind and we're very proud of that, whatever their background, whatever, whether they're first generation or if they're underrepresented minorities um, or have uh, very significant financial challenges, that they have a strong sense of belonging, that they have a strong sense of their ability to flourish, and that when they leave, they have a strong sense of not only their possibility, but also their civic duties and their duty to kind of passing it on in the world. 
And what I would say that is, um, I think it's very powerful and really a characteristic of Wellesley, but I think also a characteristic of of women's colleges. Well, it's certainly something that you inculcate, which is then manifested uh, in your graduates, and I and and liberating as well as empowering. You know, yes. I remember one Wellesley uh, alumna saying to me, "Well, nobody was there to tell us we didn't belong in science or math, That's so right. you just you know you took off." That's right, uh, and and really did well. You know, it's it's you know at Wellesley, and you know, students find the confidence that comes from practicing their own leadership and their own leadership that is not constrained, and that I think really develops a strength that uh, that is I do think um, unparalleled. Let me uh, go back to something we're all dealing with today, and that is COVID. It seems to be an omnipresence uh, everywhere. And I wonder what its impact has been at Wellesley. I presume that your work as a physician has really been called upon uh, in terms of decisions you've been making at the college. How are you responding? Are the students on campus? How are you coping with all of this? I would say that you're right about my background in medicine and public health being of value and, and being in the same city in which I was in academic medicine, which really has allowed um, allowed me to tap into a number of resources, but but I'm. Let me just begin by talking about higher ed in Massachusetts because I think it's really a model for the country, and I'm so proud of to be part of this higher education community because what we did was we really came together as a community and work together on behalf of all of us. It wasn't just those who are well-endowed versus those who are not. We really worked together to, one, develop the evidence-based protocols um, based on the best science. Actually, we met weekly with Rochelle, Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, who's going to be the new head of the CDC, and she was really on the cutting edge of, of developing the uh, the the models for how we should think about asymptomatic or surveillance testing. So we really had the best minds in the room, and uh, we worked together to create and make available the opportunity for all schools who wanted to participate to participate in uh, first of all our testing protocol, which. We had a very strong partnership with the Broad Institute, which is one of the world's leading genomic institutes, and they set up a whole testing uh, 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 operation. Um, and our work with them really led to being able to do this kind of testing um, at a much lower price. And again, this was available to all of higher ed. Um, so I think it's it's a time when the community has come together, um, and along with uh, the Broad, um, made it possible for all of us to do what we initially thought might be impossible. So that's that's the first lesson um, of of collaboration. Um, the second is that you know as we decided at Wellesley what to do, we do have half of our students on campus. 
with a lot of different protocols, uh, behavioral protocols, mask wearing, physical distancing, all types of cleaning protocols, classrooms redone, you know, a lot of investment. Um, But I think what we've been able to do in higher ed, when you follow the science, is show what's possible. Um, Our rates uh, of COVID on campus have been quite low. Um, We've had 14 cases the entire semester, and each of them, not all of them, in students. Um, And I think that it, it really took an entire community coming together to make this happen. The other thing that the pandemic, I think, has really brought to light is, you know, that the residential experience is a great equalizer. You know, about half of our students are studying in person and the other half are studying remotely. And we've had to find ways to ensure equity and excellence no matter where our students are. And our faculty have been just phenomenal and they've really embraced this commitment and the challenge that that they've been faced with. So, you know, I think it's made us even appreciate more the fact that when we bring our students to campus, that they're all living in the same place, they're doing and eating in the same dining halls. It's a tremendous learning experience, but it's such an important part of the educational experience. And we've had to find other ways to create that connection and community. Um, so it's it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, and again, I just... Um, I wish some of our country, where we now see the virus raging, um, could use the science in the way that higher ed, that much of higher ed, has used the science to drive practice. I want to end our wonderful conversation uh, with a question I, I like to ask these days because people are feeling kind of down and a little bit worried about the future. Given all that's happening in our world, what makes you optimistic? Oh, you know, I, I always have to say in terms of optimism, under under whatever conditions, that when you're the president of a college or a university, no matter what the issues of the day, and some of them can be, you know, quite difficult on any given day or every any given year, that this is this is essentially optimistic work because it is about the future. It is about our future in terms of our young people. And it's about our future in terms of the scholarship, the research produced. So just that is, to me, I am in an optimistic environment. Um, But with that being said, you know, it is a daunting moment. Um, We really, I I think of ourselves as facing three three pandemics, um, COVID, uh, racism, um, and economic inequality. And um, I think that over these past, you know, six to nine months that we've uh, seen, we've seen some devastating things, but we've also seen encouraging signs that people are rising up to really combat these ills and to try to bring a better world to the fore. You know, I would say, look at this year's election. We saw tremendous civic engagement across our, our country with record turnouts in a pandemic at the polls, obviously with expanded voting options. I mean, it is, 
it is ultimately a very strong sign for democracy. You know, we've also seen powerful and often constructive activism. Uh, I've seen it on campus, but we haven't witnessed this kind of, I think, powerful activism in the country since the civil rights movement. And um, I think that is, again, it's about engagement and looking to a better world. Um, And, uh, you know, there's been also tremendous, I mean, obviously there's been tremendous hurt and pain through this time, but there's also been innovation and people showing resilience um, and, uh, and, and a power that, um, that I think is, is very, very hopeful. So I, you know, I, I am optimistic. I think there's a lot to be, a lot of work to do, but the fact that we're waking up in new ways, um, and I see it all around me, uh, gives me just great hope for, uh, for the future. It's been a joy to be with you and, and really to touch the depths of your thinking and to learn so much from you, as I always do, and I know our listeners have today. So thanks for taking the time to be with us. It's really been great. Well, Ambassador Verveer, thank you for everything that you've done and everything that you continue to do. Dr. Paula Johnson always inspires as a leader in healthcare and education. Here are three things that resonated with me from that conversation. First, Dr. Johnson's groundbreaking research reminds us why we need to put a women's lens on healthcare. The fact is that medical conditions show up differently for women and men, and medications affect the sexes differently, which means that women need to be included in all aspects of medicine, including research, leadership, and clinical trials. Second, Dr. Johnson's life exemplifies the value of mentorship. She credits her own role models, her mother, her grandmother, and Professor Ruth Hubbard for inspiring her toward success. Finally, Dr. Johnson shows that women can flourish in fields like economics, neuroscience, and computer science. Those are among the most popular majors at Wellesley. There was nobody there to tell the women they didn't belong. Tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 
6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.